0: Section 12 of On the Witness Stand. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Julie Yu. On the Witness Stand. Essays on Psychology and Crime. By Hugo Munsterberg. Untrue Confessions. Part 2. It seems like the other pole of the social world if we turn from these cruel court procedures to the helpful humanity of our hospitals for the insane. But the sounds of reckless, untrue self-accusation are familiar there too, to everyone who knows the scenes of misery in the world of the melancholic patients. There is no judge, and no jury, only the physician and the nurse. Yet no torture of punishment can be harder than the suffering of the melancholic who feels remorse for sins which he never committed, for crimes of which he never thought before. Years ago his friend died, now arises the illusion that he has poisoned him. The last fire in the town was laid by him. He is guilty of the unpardonable sin. The slightest fault in his real past takes in this illusory affective state. New and gigantic dimensions, long-forgotten mistakes awake with unproportionate feelings of anguish. The patient accuses himself of meanness and deceit, of diabolical plans, And, with growing accuracy, he elaborates the minute details of his imaginary crimes. As a matter of course, when the physician speaks in the modern courtroom, the grave word melancholia, the self-accusation, cannot have any further consequences of a judicial character. The doors of the hospital are closed behind the patient. He may still be witness against others, but the confessions of crime which he claims to have committed himself cannot be considered as evidence under any circumstances. And as the symptoms of melancholia and other depressive states with self-accusatory ideas are easily recognised, there remains hardly any reason for fearing lest such irresponsible fabrications of a diseased brain be taken as real confessions of an actual criminal. But does this give security for a proper rating of those illusory confessions which, like the absurdities of the Salem witches, result from the temporary abnormal states of a not-deceased brain? Hysterical and Autohypnotic states may they combine with otherwise perfectly normal behavior, and pseudo-confessions may thus arise in men who are distinctly not ill. A slight dissociation of mind may set in which does not suggest calling for the physician at all, and which may yet affect profoundly the admissions made by the accused person. Has the court sufficient means at hand to convince the jury that it must weigh all the evidence with a fair consideration of these not pathological yet very influential mental variations? Whether the crime was done in a state of mental responsibility is certainly a question never neglected. The mental status of the witnesses finds usually much less subtle analysis. The cross-examining lawyers turn their attention mostly backwards to the time of the crime and overlook too often the mental state at the time of the trial. But above all, the psychical state of the defendant himself during the trial is usually measured by the crudest standards of easygoing psychology, which considers a mental life as typical and unaltered as long as the man is neither insane nor intoxicated. And yet, it would be perhaps less exaggerated if we claimed that no psychical mechanism remains entirely unchanged when a witness speaks under his oath or when the defendant faces the jury. The variations remain, of course, mostly, within the limits of normal life, as we have to call normal every setting which harmonizes with the life purposes of the individual. But variations they are, nevertheless, and only the psychologist may be clearly aware of their tendencies. Practical life would be satisfied with the broad statement that the witness was excited, or anxious, and timid, or felt himself important, or was eager to prove his view. How far really his mental possibilities were influenced? How far his perceptions, memory, ideas, imaginative acts, feelings, emotions, volitions attention judgment and ideas of self were altered through the situation is not considered and would be certainly unimportant in 99 cases out of 100. yet we must not forget that there is nowhere a sharp line to be drawn between the symptoms of real mental disease and the variations in normal personalities. There is no mental trait which belongs to mental diseases only. Whatever we find in the asylums is made up of the same material that enters into the normal interplay of human minds. The order and harmony alone are disturbed A single feature is grossly exaggerated or unduly inhibited. And by this abnormal increase or decrease of a regular trait, the balance is lost and danger is ahead. Mental diseases are like caricatures of a person. In the caricature too, every part of the face is the same as in the ordinary physiognomy but the proportion is lost. As one special part, perhaps the nose or the teeth are grotesquely enlarged. All mental aberrations are such exaggerated caricatures of the normal feelings, or emotions, or impulses, or memories, or imaginations, or attentions. And because the disease does not develop perfectly new features, but simply reinforces quite ordinary tendencies, it is easy to see that there is nowhere a sharp line between the normal trait and this pathological overfunctioning. The motionless brooding of the melancholic patient is easily recognized, and yet The pessimistic temperament of many a normal man or woman generates all the features which are so sadly developed in the melancholic attacks. Even the self-accusations and the self-destructive despair of the melancholic find their counterpart in the realm of normal life. The pessimist is too often inclined to torture himself by opprobriums, to feel discouraged with himself and to feel guilty without real guilt. From these slight traces of temperamental type to the complete alienation of the hopeless patient, there is a sliding scale of depressions. It lists through all the affective states of the neurothenic and other neurotic varieties. To recognize where the temperament ends and the irresponsible disturbance begins is made extremely difficult by the great breadth of the borderland region. Public opinion and court and jury as its organs are always inclined to claim that whole borderland failed still for the normal life and to acknowledge the mental disturbance only when the disease region is entered. But modern psychology recognizes daily, more strongly, that the subtlest analysis of the occurrences in the borderland field is absolutely necessary if the higher ends of social justice are to be reached. The courts show in all other fields that the progress of science breaks new paths for them. It is, for instance, interesting to see how the neurasthenic states are slowly recognized by the courts in civil suits as real bodily disturbance, while a short time ago they were still considered as mere imaginations and illusory complaints. The time has come to take notice of the progress in psychology too. There is no less a transitional region for all the other mental activities. Everyone knows in daily life the type of the superficial silly person whose attention is always shifting. And yet, it is only an absurd exaggeration of such behavior that characterizes the alienation of the maniac. We know the sanguine type with its quick and sudden impulses or the slow mind, whose will appears always inhibited, as if every volition is checked by an inner resistance. We know the stubborn mind, which cannot be persuaded by any logical argument, and which sticks to its fixed ideas. And we know the suggestible mind, which follows the last hint and believes everything, or at least everything which is printed. Every one of these features of a mental physiognomy may grow till its caricature stands before us as disease. And everywhere there are many steps between the extremes of pleasant originality of character and the sadness, mental abeyance. The trait becomes psychologically alarming as soon as the balance is sufficiently destroyed to make the purposes of life impossible. Persons who perhaps doubt in the reality of the outer world may be found in the asylums and on the philosophic platform. Whether the doubting mind is a patient or a philosopher shows itself quickly in the consequences. The philosopher includes that doubt within an harmonious life plan the patient's life is destroyed by his insane doubt. This steady correspondence between the normal, slight variations and the hopeless disturbances and the small steps of transition between the extremes are shown perhaps nowhere more clearly than in the field of memory. We differ from one another not only by good and bad retention of our experiences, or by good memory for different spheres. The one for names, the other for faces, the one for figures, the other for sounds. But the disturbances and illusions of memory too are most irregular. And just as no two persons have exactly the same face, certainly no two have the same kind of memory. Even unusual varieties may remain still fully within the limit of soundness. I myself, for instance, have absolutely no memory for the mental processes during sleep. In other words, I have never in my life had a dream. When I talk of dreams in my university courses of psychology, I speak of them just as a blind man might speak of colours. Yet, mental processes go on in my sleeping brain as another man because my friends have often found that when they wake me up from deep sleep with a question, I invariably give a first an absurd reply full of reminiscence of the foregoing days. But as soon as I'm really awake, not the slightest trace of this comes back to my memory. Yet this rare variety of memory is not an abnormal state since it cannot interfere with the purposes of my life, and the remainder of mankind is, indeed, rather to be pitied for its dreams, which may bring a confusion of themselves with the real past. If most people were without dreams, The dreamers would have good reason to consult the nerve physicians and their mental state would be pigeonholed in the borderland region between normality and hallucination. Dreams are hallucinations which become harmless only because the impulses to action become ineffective during sleep. I say that no field shows such a variety in normal limits as the memory and this refers to its positive features as much as to its negative ones as much to the remembering as to the forgetting that we forget is in itself certainly no defect and no pathological symptom on the contrary We could not fulfill the purposes of our life if we did not disburden our memory constantly of superfluous matter. We were lost if we had to keep in memory every face we have seen in the street and every advertisement we have seen in the papers. Our mind has to sift and sift, and we demand from our normal memory even that it follows somewhat our own imagination. We do not care to remember exactly as we experienced the impressions. Our perception is full of little blanks which our imaginative memory fills all the time with fitting associations. And when we remember a landscape, we want to have the picture rounded out and do not care whether the wave of the ocean had exactly this curve and whether the tree had just this number of branches. We remember well when we select the material, eliminate some parts worthy of being forgotten, and add from our own imagination other parts well adapted to reproduce the original experience. But it is evident that this suppressing and supplementing of memory ideas makes us unfit for life when it assumes large proportions. If we cannot remember our previous experience and if, in addition to it, our own imagination deceives us by the delusion of pseudo memories, we are of course, completely lost in the social world and the care of the asylum alone can protect us against utter destruction. Yet, Who will decide when the limit is reached where we forget and supplement too much nowhere is the borderland region broader and nowhere more important for the psychology of the courtroom we may move for a long while still in the realm of the normal It may be pure fatigue, which may decrease our resistance against the creeping of deceptive illusions into our memory. Or it may be a simple emotional excitement. No doubt, the mere fact of being on the witness stand awakens in many minds by its importance and solemnity an excitement which is especially favorable for opening the memory to suggestions and to confused ideas which group themselves around some ideas with strong feeling tone. Many a memory succumbs even to an impressive or a suggestive question. And more important still is the suggestiveness of the whole situation, and especially of its social elements. All that is still normal. There is no education and no art, no politics and no religion without suggestion. And yet suggestion is certainly, to a high degree, a suppression of objective memory. But slowly, all this leads over into the borderland region. Instead of a sound fatigue, there may be an over fatigue. Instead of light emotional excitement, the deep affectional influence of alcohol or drugs. Instead of the mild suggestive influence of the teacher and minister, the deep intrusion of the hypnotizing physician or of auto hypnotization. All that is not pathological, yet, The abnormalities of the memory may have taken, in the meantime, dimensions which alter entirely the value of the reported recollections. End of section 12.